So normally at this point in this series, I like to talk about dealing with your parents. It seems to come um, well right after talking about forgiveness. Uh, but it, you know, this week fell on Valentine's, so it just seemed like we should talk about something uh, besides parents. Um, and marriage and dating are both like two-part deals, so I thought, well, that leaves either sex or singleness. Um, and I just wanted to talk about singleness more than sex tonight. Um, not that I, I don't want to talk about sex. I do, and we will. Um, that's going to come up later. I like to talk about that. It's good. It's an important thing, right? It's where the rubber meets the road in a lot of ways. Steve Garber, who is coming to, to speak at Belmont, is a, is a fast, uh, fabulous teacher. He's going to come do a, a little thing at Belmont on vocation, like what you're calling uh, in life. And um, he said one time that he thinks, particularly for you know anybody under 30 in our day and age, um, really like kind of the best way to really see how far Christianity has sunk into their heart. Talk, he's talking about people that would say, yes, I'm a Christian. Um, the real criteria, honestly, of whether or not Christianity is taken very seriously is does it affect what they do with their bodies? And I, I think that's right. Because if there's one um, message that you get in our world today, it's your body is yours and you're free to do with it whatever you want and to use it however you want. And no one has a right to tell you what to do with your body. And Christianity, of course, comes along and says you're not your own, you're bought with a price. And there are places where Christianity is quite countercultural. This uh, topic tonight is one of those, actually. And we're going to look at a passage in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, talking about singleness. Now, there's, I have to say, there's a lot of bad teaching, not even in the church now, but in the church throughout the centuries, about the issue of marriage and singleness. And I would... It might help you to know that I was single until I was 33. Uh, And for a number of those years, I was the only single pastor on the staff of a very big church here in town where the pastor would regularly, from the pulpit, ask people to pray that I would find a wife. Right? People can be very insensitive to singles. I had a seminary professor you know, who came, um, he's an older man, love, love this man, Dr. Van Groningen. He came to, to speak to our singles group at the church. This was about a year or two after I'd been out of seminary. I, wasn't, I was doing the college ministry, but I'm in the, the singles group at the church. And I was talking to him for some, something, and he basically just said, you know, basically, you guys just all need to get married. And I said to him, you know, if you're still single and you're 30 years old, there's probably a story and just telling people to get married, not only is it not biblical, Mr. Seminary Professor, but it's not at all sensitive. Now, it's, it's easy to understand people that have, are married that really enjoy marriage love to tell other people about how wonderful it is, and sometimes they're insensitive. I know, you know, I, the, the 33 years that I lived as a single person, not only was I a single pastor, you know, where I would regularly get called out for that, um, at my ordination service, one of the elders that presided over that service invited all the single women up to the piano afterwards to meet me at my ordination service. 
right? And we can, I can laugh about that now, but it was very painful. Seriously. And so I, I don't want us to talk about this topic in an unsense, insensitive way. The hard thing about this is to say marriage is a good thing. The Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And in the Bible, when it calls something a good thing, like it does there in that verse in Proverbs, it means that you should seek after it. But it also says that it's good for a man not to marry. Both of these callings, and callings they are, are lifted up as good things. And it's very difficult to, uh, in a Christian setting, like in a church, to talk about the goodness of marriage and not make single people feel like second-class citizens. And there are actually large portions of the church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, which as part of their official teaching says that the holiest people, the people that are serving as nuns and priests, aren't supposed to be married because they should be fully devoted to God, like marriage automatically disqualifies you for that. Now, the Protestants take issue with that and say that that's, that's not the Bible's teaching. So, do you see how in a lot of settings, marriage is held up in most Protestant churches as the ultimate? And then in the Catholic Church, even officially, singleness is held up. So, there's a lot of um, disagreements in, uh, about this very issue. And I think part of the problem is that the Bible extols both singleness and marriage, and actually, both of them can be very countercultural ways to live. And, and I think that for you to truly live Christianly, not just do Christian things sometimes, but to really for Christianity to sink into how you live, and if you're trying to check out and figure out what Christianity is about, this is one of the things it's about, not just a little add-on to your life, but it should revolutionize everything about your life. And it may be that God would call you Maybe for a season, maybe for your life, to singleness. And one of the basic you know, principles of Christianity is he has a right to do that. But he also may call you to be married, and he has a right to do that. And you may not like either one of those. Because honestly, when I was thinking about asking Wendy Morgan out on a date, I thought to myself, and I... I thought about this for months. This wasn't like, I agonized over this a long time. And I thought, what if she says yes? What if she says no? Both of those are frightening prospects to me because they both are going to involve me getting hurt. God said to me, not in audible words, but I sensed him saying, I'm big enough for what if, Kevin. So where you start with this topic is to say, does God even have a right to address you about this? Does God have a right to say that my word might actually be superior to your feelings and your comfort level? That it might actually have something to say to your longings or to your fears? Because all of them come together around this topic. Uh, my friend Paige Benton, now Paige Brown, used to be uh, REF intern at Vanderbilt. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Uh, I overlapped in seminary with her. Um, many people would say she's the best preacher in the PCA, except we don't have women preachers in the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, but I think they're still right. And uh, she wrote this article years ago 
um, called Singled Out by God for Good. And I thought this was a good way to start. I, I put a little quote from this on your, um, on your outline there. So you might, you might follow with this. So I think, this, I think she, she gets the tone right of where we need to start tonight. She says, singleness is a gift, not a curse. And, and she goes on and puts it this way. Much has been written in Christian circles about singleness. The objective is usually either to chide the married population for their misunderstanding and segregationism, or to empathize with the unmarried population as they bear the cross of plan B for the Christian life. Bolstered only by the consolation prizes of innumerable sermons on 1 Corinthians 7, like tonight, and the fact that you can cut your toenails in bed. Yet singles, like all believers, need scriptural critique and instruction seasoned by sober grace, not condolences and putt-putt accompanied with pious platitudes. John Calvin's secret to sanctification is the interaction of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Singles, like all other sinners, typically dismiss the first element of the formula, and therein lies the root of all identity crises. It is not that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but that life has no tragedy like our God ignored. Every problem is a theological problem, and the habitual discontent of us singles is no exception. Can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on a cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition, but the essence of his person, not an attitude, but an attribute. So strong words. And, and, I, and I think, you know, at some point you say, well, you just talked about how you were going to be sensitive, and then you read that. Um, I think she hits the nail right on the head. I, like you, have been involved in, well, maybe you guys haven't been involved in churches. Maybe you will be one day involved in churches with singles programs, and they're usually horrible. And very rarely do they really deal with much content and depth, right? It's like youth ministry, you know, sort of for people in their 20s, and it's, it's sad because what singles need, whether you're a single here tonight or whether you're dating somebody or whether you're married, what you need tonight is to know about God and his love and about the gospel. That's the most important thing that you need to know and to know that God is good. So let's look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, the difficulty about this, I'm not going to actually read every verse, but I am going to read a good section of this, and then I'm not going to talk about every verse either, uh, but there might be verses that, that I even read that I can't deal with. 1 Corinthians is a difficult letter to teach. One of the reasons is because Paul is responding in this section of 1 Corinthians to a letter that the Corinthians wrote him. He's answering questions that they posed to him, and we don't have that letter that they wrote to him. So we're having to read between the lines a little bit. And right off the bat is, is, is a place where this really matters. Because in the very first uh, part of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, look at verse 1 here. 
It says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Literally, actually in the Greek it says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if you've read very much of the Bible, you would right away say, wait a second. Paul said something just the opposite to this in another place. Now, maybe some of you haven't read very much of the Bible, or if you had, you may not remember this. As a matter of fact, I was at a a class at seminary when the professor said, how many of you know what the Apostle Paul calls a doctrine of demons? And in a class of about 100 people studying to be pastors and full-time Christian workers, not a single person knew the answer. Well, I'll tell you the answer case you're ever in that class. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and Paul talks there about in the last days there will be these these false teachers that will rise. Um, They'll be like those with consciences seared as with a, a hot iron, hypocritical liars. It's very strong, and they will teach things taught by demons. And then the next line says this, they will teach people to abstain from marriage and certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. So Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people not to marry. And yet here, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it seems like he's doing that exact thing. You see the rub? So I think the way to understand this is the Corinthians have this saying that they love to throw around, it's good not to marry. It's good not to marry. And Paul is answering them about that. It's good not to marry. Though actually, what it literally says is it's good not to touch a woman. So some translations say it's good to not have sex. And as you go through this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, you find that that may actually be what's going on here. Um, We know from from, uh, Greek that this is a euphemism for having sex, touching a woman. It's not saying that you can't, you know, tap her on the shoulder. That's not the touching that's uh, being involved here, okay? So why would Paul say that? Well, he would say that because this is what the Corinthians are saying. But let's keep keep going here. I think that what, here's what, I'm going to kind of help you to see this, and then we're going to go through it. What Paul says to a lot of these little sayings that the Corinthians are saying is, yes and no. Yes, it is good not to have sex. There are ways that we can talk about it that that is a good thing, particularly if you're called to singleness. But if it's not your calling, well, then you shouldn't particularly think that it makes you more spiritual. And see, this is always the problem in the church ever since Paul wrote these words. Some people think it's more spiritual to abstain from sex, and some people think just the opposite, that you're not really a full Christian unless you're married. Or at least they give that impression in the church, right? And so um, Paul is saying, yes, it's good, and yes, it's not good, depending on how you um, come to that conclusion. But let me keep reading here. He says, about the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Now this is an interesting thing, this next verse. says, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband in the same way. The husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Now, this is a fascinating thing. You don't understand this because you live in the 21st century. But in the first century, this was crazy for Paul to say this, particularly to say that the man's body belonged to his wife. Nobody would have said that. This is one of the ways that the Bible is 
opposing the culture that you don't even notice because in our culture we don't think like that, or at least not much anymore in our kind of setting where we are here today in Nashville, right? The idea that neither the woman's body is her own or the man's body or his own, but when you come together in marriage, there's a, a mutual ownership is, is, a, is a really an amazing thing. And we'll talk some about that when we get to talking about marriage. Let's keep going. Do not deprive each other. That means don't stop having sex if you're married, except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, this is a pretty remarkable thing. God says you don't even get to decide to quit having sex if you're married. Isn't that fascinating? I'm going to talk about that when we talk about sex, why that might be the case. But just notice here tonight that God has the audacity to say something like that. That's pretty remarkable. And then he says... um, We'll keep going on here. He says, then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. And verse 7 is an important one here. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. What, what is he talking about? Paul himself at this point is single. The interesting thing is, Almost every Bible scholar agrees that he did not always live as a single man because we know that Paul was a a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council, and it was required that you be married to be part of that. So while we don't know anything about what happened to Paul's wife, we're pretty sure that at one point he was married, but now he's not. We don't know, did she die? Did she leave him when he converted to Christianity? We don't know. But notice that he regards his state as a gift. But he also regards the call to marriage as a gift. And that's a really important thing to see. Somebody wrote a book one time called Singleness, The Gift No One Wants. But that really misses the point. If it's a gift, you enjoy it. And I think one of the things to understand about singleness is it's a gift and it's a calling. It may be a calling for a season, it may be a gift for a lifetime. Both of those possibilities um, need to be uh, there for you as you think about this stuff. Jump down to verse 17. Now, in verse 17, he's still talking about various issues, but I want you to see the big picture point of his various uh, issues that he's deciding about. He basically has this principle throughout this section where he says that if you were in a particular state when you got converted you should generally stay in that same state. And that whether you're single or whether you're married is to be thought of as secondary to the call to serve and advance God's kingdom. Okay? So bear that in mind, and now we're going to dive into this. Verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. In Paul's day, there were a lot of Jewish Christians who were circumcised as Jews. And then when Gentile, non-Jewish people became Christians, um, some of the Jews thought, well, you really should become circumcised. And Paul says, no, they don't need to. All right, that's what, that's what he's saying there. Was a man uncircumcised when he's called? He should not be circumcised. 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. 
Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. In Paul's day, slaves could set aside money and buy their freedom. And he says, you should do that. But he's also saying, don't make that your obsession. Which is a pretty, again, it's pretty bold to tell married people that you can't quit having sex even if you're really mad at each other. It's a pretty bold thing to say to a slave, you, if you can get your freedom, do it, but it's not the ultimate goal of your life, which is what he's saying here. He goes on. Um, similarly, who, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. What he's saying is God's calling to you is ultimate, and it defines you more than singleness, more than being married, more than being free, more than being a slave. God's call is ultimate. Now about virgins, verse 25. Don't you love that verse? What he means here, what we think he means here is people who are not yet married. Okay, I have no command from the Lord. What he, what he means by that is I don't have the words of Jesus on this. Uh, whenever people in the New Testament letters talk about the Lord, they don't mean like we tend to say the Lord when we pray to God the Father. In the New Testament era, when they say the Lord, they always mean Jesus. It's, how they, it's the name that they call him. He was the Lord. And you can see that in the Gospels, and you see that in the epistles. So what he's saying is, I don't have the words of Jesus on this issue. But I give judgment, he says, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's not saying, I don't, I don't really know what to tell you here because I don't have God working in my life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I don't have Jesus' words, but I can still tell you um, what is true and what you should follow as an apostle, one who has God's grace. And he, look at this, verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. See how he's saying, don't like be so consumed and obsessed. Pursuing a wife is not the ultimate goal of your life, but you haven't sinned if you get married. See how he's trying to sort of I don't want to say speak out of both sides of his mouth, but he's trying to be balanced about this thing. And it's difficult. And it's really easy to pull one verse out and sort of camp out on that and then misunderstand what he's saying here. What I mean, look at verse 29. Well, sorry, verse uh, 28. If you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. How can he please the Lord? But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can he please his wife? And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can she please her husband? I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. 
And then he talks about, you know, if you're engaged but not yet married. But I don't think there's anybody in this situation wondering if they should break off their engagement, so I'm not going to read that um, section, okay? Because I feel like I've read a lot. Now, let, me, let me talk a little bit about this, okay? Marriage and singleness are both good choices. And Paul says here, I would prefer this, but if you do this, you've not sinned. In other words, there's freedom to follow God's calling and to make choices in this kind of area of singleness or marriage. But he says here that's interesting um, that there are some things about this life that make singleness an attractive option. There are also, I think it can be said, things about this life that make marriage an attractive option, right? Um, And what needs to matter, whether you pursue singleness, feel called to singleness, or whether you feel called to marriage, God's kingdom needs to be at the root of it. Jesus says this himself, seek first the kingdom of God. And Paul is echoing that here, okay? Now, that doesn't tell you exactly what to do. And here's the dilemma, of course, is that a lot of people wish that the Bible would just tell them exactly what to do. And some people, if they can't find that in the Bible, they try to find churches or, you know, pastors or people that will tell them exactly what to do because they don't want to they don't want to make decisions, especially if they don't know exactly what's the right decision. Maybe we'll do that convo on perfectionism again and talk about, about this. Because we so don't like this. We read a passage like 1 Corinthians 7, we're like, geez, Paul, can't you just tell me what to do? Is it better to be single or is it better to be married? Because he's like, like, you go through this passage and it's important even to read that whole section that you kind of see this sort of wrestling here. Because there are good reasons to be married and there's good reasons to be single. And both of them can advance the kingdom. We shouldn't have to defend singleness as a valid calling for Christians. Um, But if, if you want a quick defense, Jesus was single and fully imaged God. Colossians says that, that the, you know, the exact representation, right? That all the fullness of deity dwells in him, okay? Paul was single, And he says that he's content with that. And like I said uh, from 1 Timothy 4, it's a doctrine of demons to teach people you can't get married. It's a doctrine of demons to teach that. So how do you reconcile singleness being a good calling with all the great stuff the Bible says about marriage? And here, I think, is the way to think of it, is that both singleness and marriage can be ways to show the watching world that Jesus is real and he makes a difference. They can. And we're going we're to go through this and, and see this. But here's one of my favorite hymns. I don't know if we're going to... Are we singing Jesus on my cross? Yeah, we're going to sing that later, right? Which means I, I have ex, less time to preach than normal because that's such a long hymn. Um, but there's that, that one phrase in there where it says, Joy to find... In every station, something still to do or bear. That means whatever station of life you're in, wherever you're at right now, whether you're single and don't want to be, whether you're single and like that very much and have no intentions of changing that, whether you're married and don't want to be, whether you're, you know, I don't know, whatever station you're in, there's something for you to do. There's joy even for you to find right now where you are. And I know for a lot, of time, a lot of years I lived as a single person, I felt like I was in preparation for something, 
but until I was married, I couldn't really sort of get on with my life and figure out what God really wanted to do with me. I kind of had this sense that, like, like Paige said, singleness is the plan B, and I didn't know how long that plan B would last. But that's a lie from the pit of hell. God is good to you right now, and he's called you to a place right now, and there are things for you to do for his glory right now. And there may be things that you won't be able to do in the future. Look, I don't get to hang out in the dorms late at night, but I used to, right? See, I've started out doing college ministry as a single person, right? Well, at first I started out as a college student. So really, like, in the world of the students. I worked at Berkeley College of Music, right? And we had studios. I supervised the studios from six at night to four in the morning. And it was glorious. I was there in the basement of the dorm, hanging out, talking with people about the gospel, arguing about stuff left and right every night. It was awesome. I've never been able to have that experience again, right? And some of you are in that kind of place right now, and it probably will be the last time you're able to be in that kind of intense situation. Enjoy it. Take advantage of it. Serve God in that. But then, you know, I I grew up a little bit, and that was good. There were things now that I could offer to college students, but I was single. I could still kind of hang out with them, but then I went home, and they still lived in their world, right? And then I was a college student, uh, or so I was ministering to college students as somebody who was married, but I didn't have kids yet. And there were pros to that, and there were disadvantages to that. There were some things I couldn't do anymore. But there were other things that could be done now that I didn't used to be able to do. I had a wife that could meet with college girls now. We could talk together about, about stuff, right? Be a team. Like, and then I had kids, and then there's different things. And now you guys can come over and hang out at our house and have little kids around. And I couldn't do that before. And you may not think that, you, might, you know, I could just sort of look at it and be like, well, gosh, I wish I could just be a workaholic and hang out with college students 100 hours a week like I used to. Um, n- no. There's different callings and different situations. And rather than thinking about all the stuff I can't do now, I think about what can I do now? What are the gifts that I have at my disposal now that I didn't have? That's what I'm saying here to think about this. Where you're at right now, is a place that God has you. And what is there for you to do right now, right? Christians, you know, um, sometimes have made, you know, kind of decisions. Like I think, you know, this guy, Jonathan Edwards, you heard Jonathan Edwards, great preacher, had a, had a wonderful marriage. And there was this guy, George Whitfield, great preacher, greatly used of God, um, preached the gospel up and down the eastern seaboard. Thousands and thousands of people came to Christ. But he ended up staying with Jonathan Edwards and Sarah, his wife, one time, and decided that maybe he should take a wife. Now, the problem is he did get married, but he still was gone on the road preaching 11 months out of the year. And I don't mind saying that that wasn't good. Right? Now, a lot of people might say, well, you know, he was really sold out for God. There were things about his situation that he needed to take into account. Right? His calling, he maybe he shouldn't have wrestled with that. And that's what you've got to think about. What is God's calling on my life? And even to think a little bit about that, and then how does marriage fit into that? With Wendy and I, I know we, we kind of talked and thought about 
do we feel like we're better as a team than we would be on our own? And I think that's an appropriate question to ask yourself. The only problem with that question is you may not know fully the answer to that. Um, all right. Well, what, what, um, let me go on. I feel like I read so, such a long passage. I need to make sure I get to some of this other stuff here. Um, I think I said this all, you know, about 1 Corinthians, this idea that um, everything must be done in light of the fact that this world is passing away. Here, here's the way Tim Keller puts it, and I think, I think this, this is enough to say about this little section. The gospel brings us a hope in the future of God that relativizes our relationships with everything else. And this really is freedom, guys. He says, what Paul is saying is, don't overinvest your heart in anything besides the kingdom. The future of God means radical freedom. It means ultimately there's nothing that is life and death for us except the kingdom of God. I mean, it's kind of weird, he says, those who mourn should act like they're not mourning. Because none of these, even mourning is not ultimate. He's not saying don't mourn ever. This is the same Apostle Paul who said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. What he's saying here is the only thing that's ultimate and will last is the kingdom. And you should live in light of the kingdom and how you think about these things. So what that says to us, the question I pose to us tonight is, does God have a right to call you to be single? And does he have a right to call you to be married? And probably even more important, whose kingdom, your kingdom or God's kingdom, gets to determine the answer to that question, right? So, I, like, I'm not interested in just telling you how you can be sort of comforted in your singleness on Valentine's Day. I'm here to say that the kingdom of God has a call on your life. And is that what you think of first. And how do you know then if you're called to be single? Let's talk about this. Paul says singleness is a gift in verse 17, which means you should enjoy it. I don't, I don't know. Um, there was a guy I knew in seminary. He's passed away now. Um, he was probably in his late 50s, early 60s when I knew him. And he was a single man and it was really interesting, and it was really fascinating to all of us younger seminary students in talking to this guy, because he would say he really had the gift of singleness, and periodically would explore that, you know, and sort of, Tim Keller at one point said, talks about periodically searching, you know, for a mate, but not making it your obsession all the time. Uh, I kind of got to that point where some friends told me, you know, you're 33 and you're still single, um, maybe you should consider some of the women that God has in your life providentially and just ponder maybe you should, you know, move towards one of them, right? And that was good for me to be confronted that way and to think about that and to ponder that and say, you know, really, honestly, I really, I really think I would like to be married, but I'm scared spitless of, like, asking somebody out. So I'm sort of just stuck there, right? Um, but that was good for me to wrestle with. Like, I wasn't content in my singleness. If you're not content in your singleness, and I don't think that, you know, at your age, you should be concluding right now that you're called to be single for the rest of your life. I, I, I don't know that. Now, you might. Um, you might, obviously, some of you are called to be single right now, today. Right? But it may change tomorrow. And you need to be open 
open to that. And again, it's not just because somebody asks you out, then all of a sudden you know, well, I guess I'm not called to be single anymore. (laughs) No, because here's what's interesting, right? Um, Sometimes the call to singleness is a very difficult thing that you have to say no to opportunities because of the kingdom of God. In other words, in, back in chapter 6, and even in this chapter, Paul says, you know, some of the stuff I didn't read, he brings out again what he said in 1 Corinthians 6, which is that you have to marry in the Lord. Now, in, 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 he gives some freedom to um, people that are widows, because in his day, again, the, the Roman culture, if, you, if your husband died, the widows were expected to remarry within six months. If they didn't remarry in six months, something was really, really wrong, right? And Paul says, you don't have to do that. You can, you can, you can hold on, right? Why? Because the culture, the reason that, that the culture pressured that is because the only one who's going to take care of you is a husband. But the kingdom of God comes in and says, no, you're not ultimately just solely dependent on a husband. God is your husband, and he's saying this to the widows. And God is the one who pays particular attention to widows and orphans and calls his church to take care of them. So in the Christian community, widows don't have to get married right away to whoever they can so that they're not going to be destitute and out on the street. Do you see? This is part of what the Christian community did. It's why a lot of the early critics of Christianity criticized Christianity as being filled with women and orphans. And, it, and it, it was a large proportion because they took care of those people, right? So what Paul is saying here is that um, you may, you know, he says in that section, you have to marry in the Lord. In other words, if you're in a situation where the only people that are asking you to marry them are not Christians and you're a Christian, then you may have to be single for the sake of the kingdom, Right? And there are, there are places in this world where there are not very many believers. There are, you know, um, Christian women in the Muslim world that wrestle with this all the time, right? Arranged marriages that they, you know, what do you, what do, you do? There's a lot of difficult situations, but there, there may be God calling you to be single for the sake of the kingdom because it would be sin for you to marry an unbeliever. And Paul goes so far as to say that. But again, at this point in your life, you probably aren't faced with that choice at that level. You might be, but I, I, don't, I don't think so. So here's, you know, Paul says singleness is a gift, which means you should enjoy it. He also says um, that it's a gift, which means it's not an achievement. So don't think of singleness as making you better than other people. And I, and I will say, like, I think that singles and, and um, dating people or married people have much to learn from each other. And I just am never going to be content with a Christian community that wants to segregate by whether they're single or couple. And I know it's difficult because I led a small group, house church kind of group for years that was mostly couples and then like three or four singles, including me. And it was always difficult. And it was always difficult to keep those two because they always wanted to talk about different things. And here's the thing. Christianity doesn't call you to be in a community of people that are just like you, right? As difficult as it can be, sometimes you don't want to be around people who are in a different state than you because it just makes you think about it all the time, right? And therefore, both groups need to be sensitive, right? 
But honestly, like, it's worse to just segregate. I, I don't think it's a good idea. Like, we have so many churches that just segregate groups by age and stage. And it's tragic because you're in the singles class and you're with, you know, all these single people. And then you date somebody, you get married, and all of a sudden you're ripped out of all your relationships because now you're not married. Like, what that, <clears throat> now you're not single anymore. And what that says is that you're a single Christian before you're a Christian single. In other words, one of the things you need to understand is everything that you would look to, and certainly everything that people in the first century looked to to define themselves, whether it was their family, their race, whether they were a citizen of this city or not, every one of those things, there's a place in the New Testament where it comes in and says, that's not your identity, right? Your identity is that you are married to Christ. You're a Christian and single Married is secondary. And unfortunately, a lot of churches, it's easier, it is easier to split people up and just minister to people who are exactly like each other. I mean, it makes it easier to to pick music and to pick what you're going to preach about, you know, if everybody is sort of in these little communities where they're exactly like each other. But the body of Christ is never supposed to be like that. And as hard as it can be sometimes... I pray that RUF would be a place where singles and couples and dating and married, all those people can learn to live together. And I know it's not easy. I'm not saying that it, that it is. There are times when you won't want to be around people like you, and there will be times when you don't want to be around people that are not like you. And that the body of Christ says your faith is the ultimate thing that brings you together. Okay, So I exhort, whether you're single or whether you're couples, to be sensitive to that dynamic. Right, guys? Because it it's just can be an interesting thing in a community. It's an, always a shifting dynamic, but it's something that everybody needs to, to be aware of and thinking about. So, um, singleness is not ultimate. Neither is marriage. Christ is. Mm. And um, let me just say this. If you are thinking that, you know, well, let me just, let me just hit these, these theological errors about singleness and then... Um, opened up for some questions, right? This again from Paige Benton. I love, I love this uh, little section here. <coughs> she talks about warp theology is at the heart of attempts to explain singleness. And she's referring in particular to like Christian books. Um, here's, some, here's some little quotes from her thing here. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life as though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. And she's right, but that's one of those really insidious things that seems so spiritual, right? She, she, I've heard her say before, um, I heard her say this one time, you know, she loves the little old ladies that come up to her at church and say, are you seeing someone special? She says, well, I see you and you're special, <laughs> right? There, there, there's some, but again, at the heart of that is this the idea that, you know, if you become the right person, then God will bring the right person into your life. That, Martin Luther said one time, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. And that's the kind of bad theology that makes you feel like if, I'm, if I want to be with someone and I'm not, it's because I'm not content with not being with someone. That's so crazy. Um, she says this, uh, second one, you're too picky. As though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. The third one, as a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work. 
as though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful, as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. Accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers God has not given or to our list of whys, but rather on celebration of the life he has given. I'm not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I'm single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. It's a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. Now that's, that's deep theology. Deep. So what, how do you glorify God as a single person? Because that's where a lot of you are tonight. Here's a couple things I would say. First, I've said this, but I'll say it again. Singleness is not the defining factor in who you are and how you're called to live. Um, there, um, it's important because if you, if you don't understand that, it makes it, it makes it very difficult to think rightly about everything else. It, it really does. Um, she said, Paige puts it this way, am I a Christian single or am I a single Christian? The discrepancy in grammatical construction may be somewhat subtle, but the difference in mindset is profound. Which word is determinative and which is descriptive? You see, we singles are chronic amnesiacs. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. I am a single Christian. My identity is not found in my marital status, but in my redemptive status. I am one of the haves, not one of the have-nots. That's important. Um, now, Keller, Tim Keller has a thing where he talks about if you're a single person, you should periodically seek or be open to being pursued. I actually, when I talk about dating, will say this. I don't think anywhere in the Bible does it say that girls can't ask guys out. And if the Bible doesn't say it's sin, then you shouldn't say it's sin. I understand why you might not be comfortable with that, but I think you can be open to that. Anyway, that's a topic for when we talk about dating, and I'm sure that'll generate questions. But um, there probably are some seasons when you shouldn't really be seeking uh, a relationship. If you've just gotten out of a, a relationship, you know, we all know about the phenomenon of being on the rebound. The, the, there are certain times in your life when false intimacies can happen, when you're looking for another person to help you forget about something else, someone else, um, periods where you're just... Um, going through trauma or grief. These are always dangerous times, and you need the Christian community to come around you and to, to say, to be with you without you saying, the only way I cannot be lonely is to start dating somebody. And the Christian community has to help uh, each other with that sometimes. But um, here's, here's the other thing I would say. Singleness does not exempt you from serving sacrificially. And here's the way I think of it, and somebody asked me this question the other, the other night, like, how do you, you know, be friends with a girl and not fall in love with them? And I would say, well, there are lots of relationships that you're called to be in. I'm called to be in relationships to serve and to love women in this room, but not in the same way I'm called to love and serve my wife. And yet it's not completely different. It's still love, and it's still sacrificial, right? But there's a, there's a place in, in your life for thinking about that. How am I called to be blessed and to be a blessing to men and women in my life? When I 
got married, it really was because I felt a sense that, yes, I'm called to love and serve lots of men and lots of women, but I have a calling to serve this one, Wendy, and spend my life getting to know what makes her tick and how to get the gospel into her heart. I don't do that very good, but that was a calling. There was a sense in which, you know, I moved towards that because of, of that calling, of that feeling like implicated in what God was going to do to make her better than she was. And that I couldn't imagine not being part of that. And I saw that God had gifted me at least a little bit to be part of that. Right? So it wasn't completely different. It wasn't like, I don't have to love anybody, but now I found somebody. Okay, now I'm going to love them. No, I have to love lots of people. And uh, there's this great John Hyatt song where he talks about, you know, I've spent a lifetime learning how to love you. And he kind of goes through in the different verses all these, you know, different relationships. And he got hurt here, and his heart was broken here. And now he's 30, 33 years old, I think, because that's when he got married, I remember. Um, he talks about, you know, I've spent a lifetime learning how to love you. Like, there are things I learned as a pastor talking to people that have helped me love my wife and my kids, right? It's not like you just wake up one day and all of a sudden you have to start loving people. As a single person, you're called to sacrificially love even now. Um, And singleness, like I said, is not just a stage of life when you're waiting to serve God. It's a time to serve God right now. But I also would say the older you get, the more serious it gets. And we'll talk again about this with dating, but when you you need to be careful about playing with people's hearts, you know, and we'll talk about that more. I think that fits under dating um, when we get to that and, you know, dating non-Christians, all that kind of stuff. Let me, let me open it up for questions. I feel like, boy, it's hard to even dig into this topic without um, missing lots of things that maybe even were on your mind when we come and talk about this. But, yeah, hey. <laughs> 